If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Cindy, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 208 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. You're in for a classic Nay, fab conversation today with author Lori Jacobson. Lori is a Hollywood historian and author of Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. Lori is a Beatle maniac, and we're diving into the Beatles in just a few seconds. In these few seconds, I just want to remind everyone of the awesomeness found in episode 206 with Atari 2600 game designing legend Howard Scott Warshaw. He developed Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. Yes, E.T., the one that was buried in the desert. Amazingly fun, nostalgic interview. You know what else is amazingly fun? Episode 182 with John Provost, who happens to be Lori Jacobson's husband. That's right, John Provost from episode 182. Timmy from Lassie. Lori and John wrote John's memoir, Timmy's in the Well, the John Provost story. So this is actually the second deep dive into one of Lori Jacobson's books. Today, we take the long and winding road to top of the mountain, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. If you're ready to get back and dive into the Fab Four, you're in for a treat. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, author, writer, producer, reformed stand-up comic. We'll have to dive into that in a second. But right now, my guest, Lori Jacobson on the show, author of Timmy's in the Well, the John Provost story, which you may recognize from episode 182, my interview with John Provost. We went deep into that book, but also dishing Hollywood, Hollywood haunted, TV dinners, Hollywood heartbreak, and the focus of this episode, we're going Beatles. This is a fab, fab episode. Top of the mountain, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. Welcome to the show, Lori Jacobson. What? Yeah, screaming. Yeah, well, insert screams that'll make people's ears bleed. In in full Beatle fashion. That's exactly what happened at Shea, so. My dad, I believe, saw the Beatles in Cleveland. He would always tell me about seeing them in in Cleveland. I I didn't get much more than that. I wish I had more. (laughs) You can't write a book around that. I... I could try. You could but, try, but yeah. it was just, uh, that's that's all the details I have for you. I mentioned in the introduction, Timmy's in the Well, the John Provost story, which you wrote with your husband, John Provost. So I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to talk to you. I was like, oh, of all the books I've read, I've read more books by you than anyone else. <laughs> well, God bless you. <laughs> Putting you in my, as my top author. <laughs> You just you just, you pushed Seuss right out right off the shelf. <laughs> now you're my number one author, so I'm excited to talk to you. Hollywood historian is uh, is what they call you. How did you become obsessed and kind of focused in this this direction? I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, long before cable television, where when all your shows went off the air, there was the late show, and then there was the late late show, and they showed all what are now classic films, 
where I learned to love Tracy and Hepburn and Harlow and Cagney and Bogey and that whole crew. And my parents, I have to say, especially my mom, were big movie fans. So movies were always a big deal in our house. And we often went to the movies as a family to see Audrey Hepburn and people that we actually could have in common. So I loved that. I wanted to be an actress. I moved to LA in 1974. And there were still people there from the 40s. I I mean, you know, you could literally run into Betty Davis at the liquor store. <laughs> you know, you'd go to like Schwab's drugstore and people had worked there for 35 years. And so you would sit down and the waitress would come over and say, oh, you're sitting in Clark Gable's favorite booth. No kidding. How do you know that? As I waited on him here every Wednesday, and then she would tell me an amazing story about Clark Gable that nobody else knew. And the Mater D's and the bartenders and the sort of pops characters that were guards at the gates of the studios, they knew these people... They they knew everything. And that is why they held their jobs for so long. They didn't dish the dirt, but they had a million stories. And when I moved there and most of those people were gone, they were willing to part with some of those stories. And I would go back to my actor friends and my comedian friends and repeat these stories. And uh, everybody was on the edge of their seats. No kidding. That really happened. And so I just began collecting them until finally, I smoked a joint with a friend one night. We were swapping these stories. And he said, you need like a crew of handsome young boys selling maps to the stars with this information on it. And that's how it began. And I had too much information for a little tiny spot on the maps to the stars' homes. Did you ever see that? Were you in LA in time to catch those people hawking those on every other corner? I haven't seen them firsthand, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh my God, that was so long ago now that I, I forgot you may not have seen it. But so that is how uh, my first book was born. And I was early on the scene of this unsolved mysteries, murders, suicides. I mean, you know, there was was a lot of happiness, but there was a lot of tragedy in Hollywood as well. And it was, you couldn't make this stuff up any better than it happened in real life. And so a Hollywood historian was born. That's amazing. We're going to, I'm going to have you back and we're going to dive into all those. As I kind of dove into Top of the Mountain, I realized I've got more notes than I've ever had for anything. <laughs> And, we, and technically, we already have a one Laurie Jacobson deep dive because I did a whole episode with John Provost on your other book. So this would be like my second. So this is like pretty soon I'll have hopefully a whole catalog of episodes. <laughs> like People can go like, oh, the, you, know, you should listen to the, the Laurie Jacobson episodes. They're all fascinating. So all right, so you did, you did improv with Robin Williams and John Larroquette and John Ritter. We were all in Harvey Lembeck's comedy workshop, and Harvey was a regular on Sergeant Bilko with Phil Silvers, and he played Eric Von Zipper in all of the uh, Annette and Frankie Beach movies. Grew up with Phil Foster and Gary Marshall, Buddy Hackett, and those guys in Brooklyn, and those people were always dropping into class. Jack Lemon, Joey Bishop, Peter New 
afternoon, you would turn around to see who was auditing class that day, and you, it was just always an amazing experience. What led you to focus a book on the Beatles? I was always a, a Beatle maniac. I never dreamed, you know, there's there must be a thousand books on the Beatles, and I never dreamed I would be able to add anything to the wealth of knowledge already out there. But a gentleman that is a friend of mine was extremely close friends with Sid Bernstein, who was the promoter of the Shea Stadium concert. And Sid lived to be 95 years old. Uh, he passed away some years ago, but he had shared the entire story in great detail of how the concert came to be, which was an amazing story just all by itself. And so my friend shared this story with me, and I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is great, and now let's add the Beatles to the mix. And, and then I started finding out all these amazing people attended the concert as kids. You know, Meryl Streep was there. She was 16. Whoopi Goldberg was there. She was nine. Steve Van Zandt. 14, you know, the Rascals, the Ronettes, Mick and Keith. Jeffrey Katzenberg was 15. He was uh, Sid's intern that day. And, and this is just a partial list of the people that were there. So then it just got crazy, crazy story. And I began contacting people that were in the opening acts that evening and on tour with the Beatles after that. You know, one lady said, oh, well, my dad came with me that night and he took 80 color slides. And, you know, we watched them once and they've been in a drawer ever since. Would you like them? So this amazing cachet of photos began opening up to me. So I thought, hey, I really got something here. That's the story of how it came to be. That's amazing. So I will say I my fandom on any level is I, I consider myself like, a, oh, I'm a guy who really, really likes something. And some rank higher than others. The Beatles would rank higher than others. I love the monkeys, love the Beatles. You know, there's a love <laughs> Star Wars, you know, like Star Trek is good. You know, there's different levels. But I understand, too, that I'm not necessarily like one of the over uh, the over top type folks that under, you know, but. The Beatles, I've read a lot of books. I remember doing uh, reports on Paul McCartney in school and seen Paul a few times in concert. And and I've read books because the Beatles always fascinating. It's a fascinating story. You know, I've watched the documentary. I own that, whatever, that hundred out. Uh, what's the one they did a few, like many years ago, just after John died? The, oh, the anthology. The anthology. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, I have that my, on DVD, which is unwatchable because I don't own a DVD player anymore. And <laughs> <laughs> not unwatchable because it's, it's a treasure trove. I literally can't watch it. When I read your book, I was fascinated because I was reading stuff that I never, and points of view of things that I had never read before or heard before or knew. And I like consider myself someone who I collect trivia in the back of my head. And there was just a treasure. That's why I like, I took so many notes. I was like, oh my goodness, this is piecing together a lot of disparate events that were in my head, like the Ed Sullivan thing and how that kind of tied in to everything and all that kind of good stuff. So I loved all of it. And that caused me to dive in so much so that, oh, and the photos, yes, amazing photos. It's so clear, these photos, like unbelievable quality photos. And and uh, I just I want I did want to impress you that I I know that on the cover it's them playing I'm down. Hey, bravo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you, though. Thank you, Jeff, because that is truly my the biggest compliment I can receive. I've done a lot of Beatle podcasts and, you know, those people, they talk Beatles 24-7. And when they say to me, I didn't know that, that's the biggest compliment I can get. I, I love hearing that. So thank you. You are welcome. Oh, thank you for writing the book, like I said. <laughs> so Sid Bernstein, I had never heard of. It was an interesting part of the story to kind of understand how the guy, Sid Bernstein, who created this, brought them to Carnegie Hall, basically discovered the Beatles, but allowed or handed over that spotlight to Ed Sullivan and mm -hmm. allowed Ed Sullivan to kind of, if you had asked me, I was like, oh, Ed Sullivan probably discovered the Beatles. <laughs> they were on that show. That's you know what everyone always talks about is the thing that blew up the world, right? But this story kind of fills in some very important pieces to the story. I was fascinated by the fact that I didn't realize how much disdain there was for the Beatles, <laughs> like in the beginning. Oh, uh-huh. Like that was fascinating to me and just how Sid was the only one in America that really believed in them. And in the UK, Brian Epstein was the only one who believed in them. And then serendipitously, they were able to connect and launch the magic. Sorry to interrupt. I have to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my fab conversation with Lori Jacobson. Lori's going to take us through the story of how Sid and Brian made magic together. And we're back. And literally, it's such a simple story that it could never happen that way again. And that was another part that I really love. Because today with social media, a discovery that these gentlemen made could never happen that, that way again. Somebody dropping by and mentioning this or seeing an article in the paper launching this career, it, it's just awesome. Just the whole foresight. Like, how would you describe what it is that Sid and Brian saw in the Beatles that no one else saw? Well, for Brian, who had a record department in his furniture store, a couple of people dropped in and asked for their record. Hmm. You know, so he thought, oh, they're playing literally down the street at the cavern. I'll go check them out. A lunchtime concert. So he saw them in their on their own turf with a an audience that adored them. And Sid, in America, was reading British newspapers and following little blurbs about the Beatles' performances and the word pandemonium attached to each write-up. So they each saw the reaction from the crowd that they were getting, which always helps. You know, if they had walked into an office and played a song, I don't know if they would have realized what they were seeing. But, you know, seeing the reaction that they got from kids was a big factor in recognizing how popular they would be. And then Brian took it two steps further. You know, let's get you out of these leather jackets and put you into little matching suits and uh, let's do a bow at the end. And, you know, he added polish and professionalism, but they had already gotten their experience. They had, you know, they'd been playing in Germany five shows a day sometimes. They had already played hundreds of concerts by the time Brian Epstein saw them. So they had their well, one guy that I interviewed, his name is Dave Glide. 
I can't wait to meet him. He lives in Australia, but he's due to come over here one day soon. He was in one of the opening acts, Sounds, Inc., and they were playing, Sounds, Inc. was playing in Germany at the same time the Beatles were, and that is where they became friends. And they became very, very close friends, which is why Sat and and the Beatles hooked them up with Brian Epstein, and then they opened for the Beatles a lot. One of the big reasons was because they could keep secrets of what happened on the road stayed on the road. But Dave said when he first saw them in Germany, they sucked. They had no stage presence. They just stood there like you know, wooden figures, you know, so uh, clearly they learned to react and go with a crowd and make a crowd of strangers fans, a crowd that did not even speak English. So they had to pull it out of their hats and make a go of it. And they did. So by the time Brian Epstein saw them at the cavern in Liverpool, they they were really tight band that needed a little cleaning up physically. So he saw the diamond in the rough, basically. Absolutely. Got it. And then Sid just was the right person to call at the right time. (laughs) And then Sid, this is what I love. Sid, you know, tried, he heard about Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein had called dozens of people in America. He couldn't get anybody to react to them. He was so excited when someone from America called. Literally, Brian's mom answered the phone and Sid said, can Brian come out to play? basically. And she said, just a minute, I'll get him. And a brilliant partnership was formed. A wonderful friendship that evolved into a great professional relationship. It's incredible just the way, the how serendipitous it was and just how everything that came after that. So Sid plans Carnegie Hall. The Carnegie Hall concerts are the big ones. That's important to the Shea story because that's where he kind of got the idea to do the Shea concert from the sellout of that. And then Ed Sullivan was just a few days before the Carnegie Hall. Yes, so Ed Sullivan is happens to be passing through Heathrow Airport and sees a bunch of screaming girls, hundreds of screaming girls, and the Beatles happen to be coming in on that day. So he's like, what the hell is this all about? Who are these guys? And then he hears that Sid has already made plans to bring them to New York for Carnegie Hall, first rock and roll group ever to play Carnegie Hall, because Carnegie Hall didn't know they were a rock and roll group, or I think they would have said no. But (laughs) so Ed Sullivan knew Sid. Sid booked people on Ed's show. So he called Sid and said, do you mind if I put him on like three days before your concert? Sid said, great, that guarantees me a sellout. And that's the way it happened. So it did look like Ed discovered them. And of course, he didn't mention Sid. Why would he? You know, here's the hottest act from England. Boom. Right. Which is uh, probably says a lot about Ed Sullivan, (laughs) maybe. Well, you know, on that subject, but later down the line at Shea, when with Shea in the works, Sid knew that American youngsters associated the Beatles with Ed Sullivan. So he, rather than take the spotlight himself, 
he invited Ed to introduce the Beatles at Shea. And so Ed knows he's going to be there. And he goes, you know, I ought to film this. I ought to make a documentary of this. And he goes directly to Brian Epstein with that idea. And both men left Sid out of that mix, which I really think is a terrible thing. First of all, there wouldn't have been a concert without Sid. He should have been a producer. He didn't ask because Sid didn't make waves. And so the two men thought, why should we give some money away? We'll just make this little deal between ourselves. So I thought that really... Sounds like Sid was the mensch in the group. Yes, he was the mensch. And uh, Ed Sullivan kind of took what he could get. But the Ed Sullivan appearance was incredible. 73 million people watched, right? This is February 9th, 1964. So this is about a year and a half before Shea-ish, right? Roughly. Yes. This is the funny thing because my, my niece is, is applying. So there was uh, 50,000 requests for tickets for the Ed Sullivan seats, 728 seats in the Ed Sullivan Theater. The odds of getting into Ivy League college were better than seeing the Beatles on Sullivan. <laughs> it's like the greatest comparison ever. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing that I, I found when I was uh, reading your book and then just kind of looking up some stuff as well. So I think you mentioned in your book that the person who goes after the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan was a guy named Fred Caps. So the Beatles do, it's a two-part thing, right? They do their couple songs, they take a break. This guy, Fred Caps, right. comes up, who's a magician, who has the misfortune of going after them because who wants to see the people that goes after? So I just on a whim, I, I Googled Fred Caps because I was just curious. <laughs> He was a Dutch magician, and actually he was the only magician ever to become the FISM Grand, to win the FISM Grand Prix three times. That's the International <laughs> Society of Magic. So this was not just some wow. schlepper magician. This was like a real top, top drawer magician. Totally. I mean, any other day, we'd, maybe we might be talking about the magic of Fred Caps, but not, <laughs> not, not because of the Beatles. So of the, all the times they were on Sullivan, a quarter of a billion people watched them. Incredible. It's incredible. So which leads me to some of the quotes from your book that I wanted to ask you about, which I found was really interesting. So one of the things that you talk about in your book, this was like one of the light bulb things that went off where I was like, I've never heard this before. You were talking to Steve Boone from The Loving Spoonful, and he was saying that the Beatles were talented, but the shift was moving towards a band that did it all, and the Beatles got there first. And so that made me think of the book Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about this. He talks about this concept, but I never heard it like in terms of the Beatles. And Outliers talks about achievement as cultural phenomenon, and success is not found by exceptional people, but instead is a result of individuals making the most of a particular moment in time. In that book, he talks about Bill Gates, and just Bill Gates just happens to uh, be at a place that he has access to computers, and right? So like where sometimes the moment can make the person. You have to be there. And as you were kind of were saying earlier, the Beatles had put in, I don't know, about 10,000 hours, but they were pushing towards that from what you said, like in Germany and all that. So it was just real interesting to kind of think that it was a right place, right time type thing that kind of blew them up. Yeah, I mean, opportunity, you can be lucky to have opportunity knock, but you might not necessarily be ready for it. They were completely ready for it. Oh yeah. And that and that's the difference. Right, you have to you have to be ready to to take the mantle and when it's presented, but 
I'd never seen it kind of the book presented it in such a way, which was, I thought, fascinating. So it was definitely in line with a lot of the, the great moments that go on and live in infamy, that the Beatles were just ready. The time was right. We talk about 1965 just being, that, you know, the JFK assassination and racial strife and all that kind of stuff. And it was just the world was ready and the Beatles stepped in and the world just kind of embraced them. Yes, that's the difference. Obviously, you didn't grow up with the Beatles and you read a lot about them, but the experience of them changing things as I grew up changed me along with them as their style changed, as their habits changed, as their music changed. They admitted they did drugs and and suddenly Life Magazine's cover was LSD, the next, you know, the effect that they had on my generation. We didn't read about it. We lived it. And it, it really makes all the difference. Oh, I can imagine. I'm, I'm envious of the fact that of anyone got to live through that and just experience it because it's I try to think of like what maybe <laughs> you know I, I can have in comparison but I don't I don't know that there is anything big movie openings where it was wrapped around the thing but you know what I mean but not not like this entire not that had a, a mania add to it yes mania so yeah you say in the in the book it was like the world was like before the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and after Ed Sullivan. I found that just so fascinating. And then the whole idea that with the Carnegie Hall, that they sold out in 40 minutes in Carnegie Hall and someone was like, oh, you could have sold out a concert. And then Sid, and Sid was just a brilliant guy. And like, he's like, oh yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs> and then book Shay, which in itself is like a moment in time that, you know, now we take stadium concerts are a thing. You know what I mean? It's like, but uh, at that time, and this was, this was a groundbreaking idea. This was a, something that had, that had never been done before. Just incredible that they, they pulled it off. Brian's first uh, reaction was absolutely no. You know, 56,000 people, you know, that the Beatles had maybe played to 25,000 people tops and only a couple of times. As you said, there were a lot of negative responses to the Beatles and they were people still weren't sure whether they were going to be able to sustain their popularity. And Brian thought, well, this will give those naysayers if we book Shay and it's half filled all the naysayers will come out and say, see, I told you, you know, they're, right. they're, they're going nowhere, but down. He said no, but Sid uh, made him an offer he couldn't refuse, which was, I'm so convinced that I will fill every seat in that stadium. I will pay you $10 for every empty seat. That plus a couple of other stipulations of Brian's made him say, okay, go for it. Yeah, that was incredibly ballsy of Sid to do. But interestingly enough, the question I had for you, and I wondered if you knew the answer. So the Sid wasn't allowed to talk about the concert, but you talk about in the book how he cleverly basically sold out the concert without even promoting the concert. That is my favorite part of the story. 55,600 tickets. Insane. So my question is, when the Grand Funk Railroad says we sold it out faster than the Beatles, how do they know? Because they don't really know how fast the Beatles sold it out. At least from what I can tell from what I was reading, it just it just kind of happened. It wasn't like, you know, just over time and then they had to count them all. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, well, you know, because of Sid. So, all right. So here's my favorite part of the story. So Brian says, I want 
a $100,000 guarantee. This is 1963. That's unheard of. And he wants half of it in three months. And until Sid gives him half of it, he can't advertise the concert. So Sid says, how am I going to advertise if I... I mean, how am I going to raise that kind of money if I can't advertise? And Brian says, well, I didn't say you couldn't talk about it. So now Sid is in hot water at home. He's got a small baby. His wife is like, you promised you'd pay him how much for how many empty seats? What have you done? We're ruined. I'm going home to mother. So now he's horribly depressed, doesn't know what he's going to do. How am I going to raise 50 grand? And he walks his son every day in Washington Square Park. And the kids knew him ever since he brought the Beatles to Carnegie Hall. Then other bands started calling Sid and he was literally the the conduit to the British invasion. So the kids knew Sid and they would gather around him when they saw him and what's new, who's coming next. And so he thought, well, this is it. He told the kids, I'm bringing the Beatles to Shea in August, in eight months, and uh, here's a P.O. box, and here's how much the tickets are going to be. And literally, he did this every... I mean, people fainted, okay, when he said he's bringing the Beatles to Shea. So he literally did this every day for three weeks, and then he finally worked up the nerve to go to the P.O. box and see if he had any orders there at all. And they, they came out from the back room at the post office to see Mr. Box 21. Who is this guy? As they drag out bags and bags of mail and he brings it all home. They're opening it and like yen falls out of one envelope. Rubles from another envelope. Money from another reference from my youth behind the uh, Iron Curtain. So at a time when there was only long distance and letters. <laughs> in three weeks, this news went around the world. And he oversold the stadium and had to send thousands back. So there was no uh, system for handling all this mail like there is now. To say that, you know, another band, Grand Funk, sold it out next amount of time. Well, heck, there were ticket agencies and phone numbers to call and, and a lot more modern convenience than the Beatles had. They had a P.O. box. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's like how do you even lay claim to that? It's yeah. like, because uh, all Sid did was go, hey, <laughs> Beatles are going to come and uh, no posters, nothing. So I just love that this network of teenagers carried the news around the world. I mean, today, obviously, with social media, it would be around the world in a minute. In a minute, right. But that's what I loved. I do, you know, they always show pictures of teenage girls on the phone with their feet up in the air and, you know, hanging upside down and stuff. And that's what happened. It's also incredible. This isn't converted to today's dollars, but the tickets were only $4.50, $5, $5.65 was uh, the most expensive ticket to get you to the see the Beatles. Not to flash forward for a second, but like I was distraught to find out like Sid only made $3,000 on this entire thing, which made the yeah. whole getting cut out of the filming of the Shea Stadium and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, just not getting the full credit. 
like even probably harder to swallow. Yes. Uh, so, all right. So this is it. They, Sid rents the stadium. The other thing that kind of, um, I was watching the documentary after reading the book because I just wanted to get a feel for it too. And like, my first thought was, wow, if this was an indoor stadium, everyone would be deaf. Like that's what we would be talking about was that the Beatles deafened 55,000 people. Probably the only reason <laughs> that anyone like did escape with their hearing was because it was an open air stadium. <laughs> like where it had so Somewhere to go, and I, that's all. I, that's all I can think. Like, oh my god, this would have been horrible. Sorry, that's no. That's the first thing anyone I spoke to mentioned: the screaming, the screaming, and the way the stadium is was designed was that all the the sound from the audience focused right down onto the stage, like an amphitheater. And so, yes, the people down below were definitely had hearing loss and uh, damage. Bad. I can imagine. Oh. Oh, oh, you know what I wanted? You mentioned something earlier. I had a note I wanted to to dive into. This was another one of those things where I was like, ah, oh, and this is, I'm sure, just my being naive. But it was like the whole, uh, the Beatles were dirty dogs. I mean, they were... <laughs> They, they were specific about it, but they were not a faithful crew. <laughs> it seemed like they had their, their women behind the scenes. Oh, oh, yeah. None of them ended up with the people they were with at the time. John was with Cynthia. Ringo was about to or married Maureen Cox. Yeah, they were married. They were married. And then George was with Patty and Paul was with Jane Asher. And so none of them ended up. And the other cool thing in the book, which people at the concert in that was the future wives were there. Linda Eastman. Oh, yes. Barbara Bach and future brother-in-law, Joe Walsh to uh, yes. Ringo Starr. That goes to show you, you ever like, I remember like talking like growing up and someone's like, good chance you've met or been in the same place as, as a person you're going to marry. Probably cross paths. You just haven't. Anyways, I thought, I thought that was, uh, so they were fans of the Beatles before. Uh, actually, Barbara Bach wasn't, right? It was her daughter, her sister that was. Yes, her sister who ended up married to Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh, who was also there. Yeah. Yeah. Of the Eagles, not that political guy. But everything was a story, like a great part of the story. Like there wasn't anything like like getting there. Forget the drama of them coming to New York for a second. Uh, I mean, that was crazy. And I loved all the Cousin Brucey stuff. But like just even just getting them to the concert and getting them out of the concert. The fact that nobody died. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like when you think of like truly any one thing could have happened where there could have been like a, a stampede. Absolutely. That was the biggest fear. 10,000 people decided to rush the stage would have been nothing that they could have done. I mean, they had levels, different levels of security. But if you were facing a mob like that, the thing is, nobody wanted to hurt the Beatles. Like the Beatles were actually afraid to go out. And Mick Jagger was there with Alan Klein, who was a manager who was hoping to woo the Beatles away from Brian Epstein. So he brought his newest act with him, uh, Mick and Keith, and he brought his uh, biggest singer, Bobby Vinton, with him. And Bobby and Mick were walking through the stadium, going down to where the Beatles were getting dressed. <laughs> Bobby said, you know, these like tough guys from Brooklyn saw Mick and started hitting him. And Mick started running and Bobby started running. And then Bobby said, well, wait a minute, they're not hitting me. So he slowed to a walk. <laughs> and Mick just had, you know, so there was that reaction from 
some guys who you think you're so tough, Mick Jagger, boom. You know, so the Beatles, so Mick goes downstairs, tells him I had to run for my life. Now they're afraid to go out. People were tired of the opening acts and kind of throwing bottles and stuff. And so with all the security that they had there that night, my favorite part of that is that two different photographers found their way into the bowels of the stadium. And one of them kept opening doors, trying doors that they were all locked. And finally, one opened and it's their dressing room. And he walks in and starts taking photos of them. I mean, excuse me? You know, Brian Epstein would have burst a blood vessel if he had known that it was really literally that easy. And the other guy who was only 17 and he was doing the same thing, trying all the doors. And the one that opened for him was full of New York City cops. He fakes a British accent. He says he's a friend of George Harrison's and he's supposed to take photos that night and he got separated from the group. Could you take me out on the stage? I'm to the on the field. And they lead him out to the field where he's standing between Brian Epstein and Ed Sullivan and I think Murray the K. And nobody says, Hey kid, what are you doing out here? He has a nice camera and they leave him alone, you know, and he takes 60 photos from the edge of the stage, one of which is the cover of the book. So there were, you know, if people had been industrious like these two guys were, you could have just walked right into something. Sorry to interrupt my conversation with Lori Jacobson. Have to take a quick break. And we're back with Lori Jacobson diving even deeper into how these photographers made it into Shea Stadium and eluded security. And we're back. That story is one of my favorite in the books where he's, I think you you also mentioned he's like wearing like this weird little jacket, this little short, little too small for him. He was 17 and he wore his bar mitzvah suit. Right. And the New York cops are just like, they don't know what a British person is. <laughs> right. So, so they're just like, all right. <laughs> we knew so little about the English at that time. So they see this guy in pants that are three inches too short and goes, yeah, he must be British. Sure, I'll take you out there. All right, they get the Beatles there. George Project, I'm sure, needed therapy between the the plane that he hated and the claustrophobia in the uh, in the uh, Wells Fargo <laughs> security van. Another really interesting tidbit was they didn't have a set list. That was, I mean, that's crazy. They said they they must have like done enough though. They were just like, oh, we'll just you know this this is what we'll do. I mean, I can imagine because it was a pretty from at least the documentary. It seemed like it went pretty smooth. Like they went from one song to another. The filming of it, the disappointing thing about the filming of it, that part of the story, that thread is the Sid thing, of course, that we talked about, but also like they didn't use the original audio. It's not them actually singing that concert. Yeah, I think, you know, people constantly ask, why doesn't Apple release the entire footage of the concert from all the opening acts and everything? And the audio was terrible. You know, the screaming, first of all. And secondly, it was so simplistic. I like to say that technology woke up the next morning and said, this is the future and we're not ready. And they got ready real fast because four years later was Woodstock. And they were ready. But, you know, they had these puny little speakers 
to blast out the sound. And then they attached extra microphones to the microphones that they were singing in. The Beatles couldn't even hear themselves. Ringo said he could tell what song they were playing by the way their butts moved back and forth. You know, so yeah, the producer of the documentary, Ed Sullivan's uh, son-in-law, Bob Precht, wanted to go with the raw original sound. He thought it really captured the evening, but Brian said no way. And so they dubbed some of it and they used concert footage from the Hollywood Bowl. They didn't use the footage, they used the audio. And so mostly it's completely dubbed. But then they didn't say that it was dubbed. I think that that's a disappointment. Like they, they kind of made it, they wanted you to think that was the concert. <laughs> yeah. They did. They did a good job dubbing it. I'll give them that because I knew it watching it. (laughs) It was like, you know, so I was like trying to say they did a good job. I think if you didn't know. That attests to how tight they were as a band because dubbing is a real art. And they went into the studio having never dubbed anything. I don't know. Maybe they had to dub some lines and help or Hard Day's Night. But here they had to dub entire songs. But they were a tight band. They knew how they sang it. It was easy. The crew was shocked at how easily they could sync up. The interesting thing, and is, and I know you lived through it, so you know, but like by the time the documentary, which we didn't even cover, was filmed by the people who later did The Godfather and all that kind of stuff, was uh, the documentary itself, by the time it aired in the United States, the band had evolved so much. It was like practically, because I mean, we think about the Beatles, right? The Beatles were around for what, about five-ish years? And like that entire evolution of that band took place in that period of time. I mean, it's it's insane how the later albums, you know, aren't a decade later, they're years later. And then, you know, then it, yeah, it ended. But the, but it, I found that to be humorous as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a year and a half later, they're into Sgt. Pepper's. Their look is entirely different. Their music is so different. I don't even think they could have done some of that music live. And so by the time it came out, they didn't even look like that anymore. And those songs were then old by the time it came out on American television. So it was already uh, nostalgia and it bombed. People were like, what's this, you know? Well, Sid probably was glad about that. Now he probably, <laughs> he, went, he was probably too good of a guy to, to bathe in that that glory <laughs> of them failing. Um, yeah, so, so how would you how would you wrap up like the, just the impact that Shay had and still has to this day you know, with the Beatles? Uh, it was an enormous cultural turning point. I think besides technology doing a 180, Madison Avenue realized, whoa, these kids are buying more than pimple cream here. We got a whole new generation to cater to. That was huge. And also the kids themselves, 56,000 like-minded people had never gathered in one place before. And some of the opening acts said that to me, that they were speechless to be on that stage in front of a crowd like that that it was a turning point for them personally and and the crowd as well. One of my favorite moments of uh, people going to Shea, two fans that I spoke to were coming from Staten Island. They had to take the ferry to Manhattan and then they had to get on a train to go to Queens and it's Sunday late afternoon and when the train pulled into the station and it opened, 
it was filled with 14-year-old girls going to see the Beatles at Ed Shea. And nobody else was down there because everybody's home for dinner on Sunday night, right? So I just thought, what a cinematic moment that is. And, you know, you immediately, you're in there in the subway with your people. You know, that, that hurt, that hadn't happened before for people. So it literally changed pop culture overnight. And of course, all we saw after that were stadium concerts, you know, with Mick elbowing Sid that night saying, hey, do you think we'll ever be able to play a stadium? Uh, Give it a couple of years, Mick, and maybe you might make it. That's what Sid said, Jim. So. Oh, that's so funny. And then when they finally tore Shea down to be a parking lot, Billy Joel was the last concerts, but it was Paul McCartney that closed out the final Shea concert. That was pretty cool. Yes. So it was interesting. I, um, you know, they played Shea again, right? A year later. Yeah. They came 11,000 seats short, which is funny to think like, oh, that's a, it's a failure to not to (laughs) to sell only 45,000 tickets to a concert. It's kind of funny to put it in that context. But like, uh, I think in your book, you mentioned that George didn't even remember doing it a second time. (laughs) That's right. And so this moment in time was the Beatles absolute peak of Beatlemania. Because shortly after, you know, John was quoted out of context as saying, we're more popular than Jesus now, and boom, everything changed. Suddenly people turned against them. Fans were burning albums. Radio stations refused to play them because of this remark. So they go to Shea the following year and they can't sell it out. It's this incredible moment captured on film. You know, the people that I spoke to that were there, and they speak of it with such reverence, they remember every minute detail of it. I saw the Beatles in 66 in St. Louis, and I can't remember what I wore. I can barely, I just, I remember just little tiny moments from it. But for the people that were at Shea, it was a religious experience. I remember when I talked to John, I said, hey, John, you saw the Beatles? He goes, no, actually, I saw him twice. I'm like, whoa, rub that in my face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, how you explain the title of your book comes from a quote from John Lennon. And it's just it's interesting when people are at the top of the mountain. Anywhere, like you said, taking that comment out of context and just how quickly people will turn on, you know, they are, they everyone wants to build people up and then just tear them down. It's almost like it's a weird society thing. I looked up some 66 footage and there was a reporter talking to people in the audience trying to get them to say you're not he's like you're not really still into the Beatles are you and so I was like what are you doing what makes that guy look so stupid right I'm sure even then is like here we are 55 plus years later and we're, we're still talking about them like they're just as important today and like their impact today and they've touched so many people and it's we're still they're still so much part of culture it's like it's just it's so funny to look and think like how much Newsweek back them and all that kind of stuff. And you know, I think that, you know, the Beatles were certainly knew they were popular. They're riding this wave. They have all these number one records. But I think that night was the moment they realized that they had the power to sway a generation of people. 
It's one thing to be aiming to be number one on Billboard's 100, but it was so big what happened to them that night. And you can see it on their faces when they walk out onto the field. They're just completely blown out of the water. It was just, you know, I think if you spoke to all four of them and asked what was your most memorable concert as the Beatles, that's the one. That's the one that changed it all for them. It is incredible. And I, and don't, and everyone, anyone, everyone listening, don't take my, that I was upset about the dubbing. It's a fascinating watch regardless. The, like there's, and there's a couple of things you can find like on YouTube, there's like their concert. And then you can find the actual documentary somewhere as well, where it just, it's just amazing to watch that moment in time. So it, it is fascinating that they have it. But of course, don't do that without buying Laurie Jacobson's book, <laughs> Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. Because I got to tell you, the combination of the two, I was in heaven. I really was. It was like, because I read your book and then I watched that and it had so much context that I never would have like really had. And it was great. It was just, it was great to, in my own way, live it for a moment through your words. Oh, so thank you. Thank you. And you know, I'm just going to say there's so much more to the book. You know, we follow the Beatles from the time Sid discovers them all the way to the concert and a little bit after in the aftermath and how they changed from the innocent young lads in 63 that they were to, you know, they got dosed unbeknownst to them. They were dosed with LSD, John and George and their wives. And that opened incredible new doors for them. And oh, my God, yes. They found out they were playing to segregated audiences in the South and they refused to go on. You know, Vietnam was heating up and and the shade jackets were kind of a military style. And John was beginning to get his political chops in order. And he, he was like, I don't want to wear this coat, but he had to wear it because the others do. So the break is starting to happen. I don't love being, I love playing music with my friends, but I don't love being a Beatle. There's this whole undercurrent of what's happening to them, which was also so fascinating. Oh, yeah. Beatle fans, we just scraped the surface in this interview. I would have had to keep Lori for another couple hours, but her husband's stuck in a well. Ha! See what I did? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, oh, this is for B. Be- if you want to dive into history, if you're a Beatles fan, this book is for you. There is so much, so much. Seriously, I had like 18 pages, and I don't even think I covered half of that uh, in this conversation. There is, it's, so rich. It, it's exactly what you would hope. Thank you so much. Lori, tell people where they can find you online and all that goodness. Oh, hey, I'm in all the usual places, lauriejacobson.com and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Although not so sure if I'm going to stay on Twitter, but right now I'm still <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, the book is available uh, on Amazon and anywhere that books are sold. Awesome. If you want a signed copy, write me at lauriejacobson.com or on Facebook and I can make that happen for you. That sounds like an amazing birthday, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, or wedding, or Christmas gift. <laughs> <laughs> So awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending all this time with me. I look forward to having you back because I want to dive into some of your other books and dive more into your Hollywood knowledge. But this was amazing. This concludes my second Laurie Jacobson 
episode. And thank you for all the research that you did for this interview. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It just enhances uh, the experience. So thanks, Jeff. My pleasure. All right. That was Lori Jacobson. It was so fun exploring the passion and magic behind the Beatles' performance at Shea Stadium in 1965 with Lori. If you love the Beatles, you have to get Lori's book, Top of the Mountain, The Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965. The links are in the show notes. It's an amazing, amazing book. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. Oh my goodness, episode 208 has come to an end. I can't believe it. It just flew by. And I didn't even get to do my Ed Sullivan impression. Probably a good thing. One more huge thank you to my special guest, Lori Jacobson. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.